Hello, I'm Luke Dinarona, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre here at UCL, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Musab Yunis. Musab is senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Queen Mary, University of London. He works on international political thought with a focus on race, empire and anti-colonialism, especially during the late 19th and 20th centuries. For the last few years, he's been teaching at Queen Mary, the University of London Institute in Paris, and he's a regular contributor to the London Review of Books, got some excellent essays in the LRB. But today we're going to be talking about Mossab's book on the scale of the world, the formation of black anti-colonial thought, which was published by the University of California Press at the end of last year. This is a book about how anti-colonial ideas circulated across the Black Atlantic between the two world wars and the way in which anti-colonial thinkers were necessarily theorising on the scale of the world. So thanks for joining us, Mossab. And my first question is, could you tell us what you mean by thinking on the scale of the world? Thanks for having me, Luke. So what I mean by on the scale of the world is something actually quite literal. I mean on a global scale. And the reason that I wanted to point this out is that going through the archives produced by radical anti-colonialists, pan-Africanists, various black radicals of the interwar period, I noticed very quickly that there was a kind of insistent focus on the scale of the world. And that contrasted with the kind of language that I think has become common in more recent years. And it really struck me how a Sierra Leonean writer, for example, and I opened the book with this anecdote in 1919, talking about the Paris Peace Conference, declares that the grand machinery of the world needs to be reconfigured in order to find an appropriate place for Africans and the African diaspora. And it struck me that despite people living in colonial conditions where their access to the world was actually very restricted in lots of ways, they nevertheless saw their own liberation, political liberation, from the depredations of colonialism as being contingent upon some form of reorganisation of the whole world. And so that's really what On the Scale of the World is about. It's about the wide angle focus that these thinkers insisted on and what it's not about, I guess, or what the kind of obverse to the scale of the world is, is a form of provincialism. And I can talk more about that. But I see this archive as resolutely and in a really important way, anti-provincial and anti-localist as well. Maybe you can say a little bit more about the archive, because I suppose for people who haven't read the book, what are the importance of the kind of print cultures that make up some of this archive to this kind of worldly perspective? Yeah, I mean, it probably helps me to say a little bit about how I came to find these archives. And, you know, I've been interested in Pan-Africanism as a political project. And for my master's thesis, I wrote about Kwame Nkrumah and other people's project to create a United States of Africa between 1957 and 63, when the Organization of African Unity was founded and kind of put an end to that dream in that form. And one thing I realized reading about that post-independence period was that so much of the ideational kind of basis of it had been laid in the interwar period, in the period just before independence for most of these countries. And so I became very interested in that kind of ideological, really, in a way, a kind of revolution, I think, in thinking about colonialism. And that was particularly the case across the Black Atlantic. I was especially interested in West Africa and the Caribbean, but also their connections to Europe and the US. And so the kind of main archives that I looked at were really almost all texts produced by West African and Caribbean figures in either of those places or Europe or the US. 
And yet much of it was not published as kind of political tomes of political theory or books of economics. And yet they spoke about politics and economics and all those things. So a lot of it's newspapers and the archives are held in various colonial locations or in West Africa or the Caribbean. So, yeah, that was important to me because I also wanted to show the ways in which that anti-colonial theory was produced and communicated across distances also is very significant to the kind of content of that theory. So form and content here are really one and the same and can't be separated. And there was something very significant about the ways in which these imperial technologies had been seized upon by anti-colonial thinkers, particularly the newspaper, but also the telegram, also travel, shipping. That says something, I think, about their view of the possibilities contained within modernity, despite all of the problems that were also there. No, it's fascinating. I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the period, because in one sense, I'd like to say more about what your book adds to the historiography about this period, the interwar period, and then also about, you know, how it makes an intervention into theorizations of anti-colonial thought, because you do mention really usefully, I think, references to the idea of a world system or kind of third worldist theory or pan-Africanism, etc. And how perhaps are you making a kind of corrective that we might be looking in the wrong place for where some of this theory comes from? And finally, you read in both French and English. So you're trying to make an argument about the connections that aren't always made between Francophone and Anglophone circuits of anti-imperial thought and of imperialism itself. So maybe you could say a little bit more about that moment and the circulation of ideas. And are they going across from kind of French and English speaking anti-colonial thinkers? How are these ideas circulating? Yeah. So if I just pick up on that last point to start with, I think there is a really important form of travel and communication across languages, not just French and English, but they are two of the main imperial languages of the period. And in a way, I guess it's quite surprising that given the prevalence of anti-colonial writing, writing that was critical of colonialism in both languages at the same time, and the form of communication between them, like scholars have actually very rarely looked at these forms of writing together. One of the big exceptions is Brent Hayes Edwards' book, The Practice of Diaspora. So I wanted to really take Edwards' method in a way, and he works in literary studies, but say, can we also look at political writing from a kind of political framework, an international theory framework, in the same way? And I think that one thing that really interested me was how these texts are speaking to each other and speaking to many of the same themes. So let me just give an example is that you know, there's a proliferation in the interwar period of newspapers in West Africa. So this is like a golden age of West African newspapers. And newspapers are recognised as being the basis of West African nationalism. So they're politically very significant. People like Namzi Azikiwe, who are newspaper editors, then become presidents of their respective countries, Nigeria in his case. At the same time as that's happening in the US, there's the proliferation of newspapers like the Negro World, Marcus Garvey's newspaper, which are formative, extremely significant moments in the history of black radicalism, internationalism, nationalism. And at the same time, in interwar Paris, a range of black radicals, many of whom fought for the French in the First World War and then have remained behind in Paris, go on to found a series of newspapers. So in these three locations that I was particularly interested in, these newspapers, of course, which occupy different political positions, ranging from more or less critical of colonialism or more or less compromising or uncompromising. Nevertheless, they're all dealing with trying to theorise what colonialism is, what race is, and how liberatory future for Africans and the African diaspora might be secured. 
And so I thought it was really important to look at those texts together in one book. And that's one of the things I tried to do. One of the things that helps us to show, and this speaks to your question about the specificity of the interwar period, is the ways in which the interwar period, certain changes in particular to do with the accessibility of travel and print and also literacy, which, you know, remains restricted to an elite in certain contexts, especially West Africa, but nevertheless expands massively, you know, compared to the late 19th century or even the early 20th century. So these features like travel and literacy, obviously the First World War and the effects that that's had, potentiate Pan-Africanism as an idea and Black internationalism and Third Worldism, in general anti-colonialism, in a way that even if those ideas were not completely new, they hadn't been able to take this form before. You know, Pan-Africanism was about uniting the dispersed constituencies created in part through the transatlantic slave trade. But, you know, that, that requires a certain technological capacity that had been much more restricted before. So I think there's something very specific that happens in that interwar period to do with this interaction between the moment and what it offers and then the idea of a kind of global transformation. Of course, as I mentioned in the book, the idea of needing to transform the world, of forms of globalism are really common in the interwar period. And, you know, 1919, the end of the First World War is a moment when many people from many different places and contexts are thinking about what the world should look like and how we might organise the world differently. And I guess one of the aims of this is to show that people in Africa and the Caribbean and elsewhere are thinking seriously about those same questions. I suppose there's been a set of debates about the relationship between nationalism and worldliness often in the context of the period of decolonization after the Second World War. So I'm thinking, you know, there was a lot of debate after Adam Gestu's book, World Making After Empire, and a kind of conversation about the ways in which different anti-colonial thinkers were or weren't seeking only to claim one nation state or whether they were connected to pan-movements and trying to, I suppose, trace the tragedy of the post-colonial for many formerly colonized nation states and societies. How do you think your book kind of adds to this set of debates about that question of nationalism and internationalism? So I think it's a really important question. In a way, it's one of the places I got to quite early in the research of the book, because I was really interested in the disjunct between theories of nationalism. And I'm thinking here particularly of the kind of body of work known as nationalism studies, which seeks to kind of abstractly theorise what nationalism is and how it came about, etc., and how to define it. And then the history of, in particular, black and African nationalisms. But I think it goes more broadly for anti-colonial nationalisms in general. And realising that there was a disjunct that spoke to the fact that often a form of nationalism, internationalism and pan-nationalism, let's say in the African context, were all working together, in a sense, aiming to achieve the same thing, which was a form of changing the world, you know, a reconfiguration of the world. And the reason that they were all connected was because there was a sense that the obstacles facing black liberation and African liberation were the imperial system as a whole, not just a particular empire, and racism and what they called the global colour line at the time. And both of these things were essentially global in scale. So therefore, what looked to some people in nationalism studies like doctrines that are the products of certain kind of deeply held beliefs. You're either a nationalist or an internationalist or a pan-nationalist. You know, in this other context, start to look a lot more like political tools aiming to achieve a certain form of reconfiguration. 
And so one of the things I became really interested in is how did people, for example, you know, Ghanaian political activists like J.E.C.K.C. Hayford, how did they come to understand the interrelationship between their nationalism and their internationalism? And in a way that then it becomes a question about scales and the interrelationship between scales. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about in the book as well. But I think that there's a reason, and I think Adam's book is a really important contribution in showing that the black anti-colonialism, the black Atlantic anti-colonialism and nationalism of a slightly later period was really engineered towards what she calls world making. And I think that it's a really important moment in general in research into black Atlantic nationalism and anti-colonial nationalism is to question some of the kind of sharp divisions that we've sometimes seen between nationalism and internationalism which I think sometimes come from, and that's my contention in the book, from a lack of sufficient attention being paid to their worldly and planetary ambitions. So when you say that the worldly and planetary ambitions of these thinkers can be contrasted with provincialism, are you thinking of provincialism as an unfair accusation made against these national movements? Or are you thinking of it as another current within these kinds of spaces and times? Is the foil really about actually existing provincialism or political movements for that? Or is it about a later period when things become provincial? So I think it's both, actually. For me, the accusation of provincialism, I think that comes, you know, I have a chapter that focuses mainly on Garvey and it's the second chapter. And I try and show that Garvey is a complex figure. There are different forms of Garveyism. I think there's different Garveyisms that we can interpret and People are often very keen to find one thing and say, this is really the essence of Garvey. This is what Garvey meant. And one of the things I found was that the accusations of provincialism that are very often attached to Garvey and then what you see as like Garveyite black nationalism, they sometimes misapprehend some of the content of, let's say, his conception of race, his conception of racial boundary, his conception of Africa, his conception of anti-colonialism. You know, these can be contradictory because he says different things at different times. And Garveyism, you know, as many scholars have shown, especially in recent years, was a really broad and diverse movement operating in many different places and meaning different things to different people. But one of the things I show is that, for example, Garvey himself, in an editorial in 1923, he expressed certain forms of scepticism, for example, about the definitional boundary of the word Negro and how to categorize it. And he did that in response to the French government claiming that the Moroccan and Algerian troops it was using to occupy the Rhine were not, in fact, Negroes, quote unquote. They were not black. And Garvey expressed scepticism about trying to define this category of Negro in a way that reflected a certain kind of biological reality. And so moments like this, I think, are quite surprising compared to if we think of someone like Garvey as a kind of, you know, a racialist or someone who really believes fervently in the idea of biological race, because you can find elements of that in what he says. But you can also find like deep scepticism and a sense of a kind of radically contingent understanding of race and its boundaries and contingent on specifically the operation of global imperialism. And then one of the things I try and show in that chapter is the extent to which Garvey was really obsessed with globality and with the world, you know, his newspaper, The Negro World. It's interesting how few times people have really thought about that world element to that title and why it was so important to him. So that was the element about trying to defend, not necessarily defend, but certain kind of complexify the idea that certain people are just provincial nationalists. But then the other thing is to also say that, you know, provincialism is, in some cases, a temptation that should be resisted. And I think the idea of provincialism 
because of the kind of the propaganda for localism that we've seen in recent decades, it's become very hard to criticise provincialism. Provincialism is seen as almost a good thing because it's a form of resisting the domineering, you know, what I refer to in the book as the Apollonian gaze of globality. And whether we're speaking from the perspective of Foucault or Bruno Latour, you know, there's this deep scepticism that's been evinced towards the idea of globality, the global scale. And I tried to kind of reclaim that for critical politics and say that actually anti-colonialists found that global scale really important, often because they were trying to resist forms of provincialism that were being imposed upon them. So I give the example in the chapter about West Africa of indirect rule and indirect rule indirect rule was a form of kind of provincializing from the imperial perspective. And, you know, I think imperialism actually very often works through enforced provincialism. And so people like Casey Hayford and many others, Corbyn Asechi, who resisted that, you know, they very consciously often talked about trying to expand the spatial boundaries of the policies that they were interested in beyond what the empire would like them to do. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the distinction between globality and planetarity. I mean, you have some notes in this throughout, because obviously the discussion about planetarity is quite live, especially in the context of climate breakdown. But what is the kind of case you're making in all its subtlety about retaining globality or about keeping both terms? There's a conception that's quite common now, which is to say that these two things are very different and that globality refers to a kind of, let's say, a rational kind of knowable world. Maybe you would say the world 100 years ago, you know, at the time of the 1920s when people are thinking about how the world should look. And it's kind of institutional, but there's a utopian element to it that's based upon a kind of what we now know as a misapprehension of the capacity and limits of the earth. And seeing the world as basically really in a kind of human-centric way through the lens of mankind, people. And I say mankind because also there's a kind of, a, there's a gendered element that's been pointed out. So that's how globality seems, and, and then the planetary is posited as a kind of alternative to that, which is a way of thinking about the world that really recognises that the Earth long predates humanity and will probably post-date humanity, and that there's a kind of radical contingency to our existence as a species on the Earth, and then there's a sense of the menace, the unknown forces that kind of the planet holds. So there's something much bigger, more expansive, there's something about geological time in the planetary that isn't there in the global. And, you know, I think that distinction is significant in some ways, but I think actually I don't completely buy it. And one of the reasons I don't, and I mention this in the book, is that I think that both of those definitions, to me, reflect a kind of elite way of thinking about the global and the planetary. And they also insufficiently, I think, pay attention to the theoretical process by which we arrive at conceptions of scale. And so, for example, if you think of the global, as many people do, as purely a product of the imperial vision, the racial vision, you know, the need for empire to dominate everything, what you don't see is that the obverse to that the opposition to that has also been global in nature, because in many ways it's had to work through the system that's been constructed in order to dominate it. So there isn't a way, I think, of simply ignoring or bypassing globality by saying, well, it's a product of power and therefore it can be rejected. And we can just simply turn to this other conception that's kind of always been there. So I draw on this phrase by Edward Said called surreptitious counter-narrative. And I argue that the black anti-colonial thinkers that I look at 
What they were often doing was constructing a surreptitious counter-narrative of globality, which was global in nature, but which actually did the opposite things to what imperial globality was seeking to do. And nevertheless, it recognised that it had to operate on that scale. Now, when we think of the reasons that the idea of the planetary is popular today, and we think of anthropogenic climate change, and the more limited range of prospects in some ways that seem to be open to us as a species, I think actually that the history of the surreptitious counter-narrative, the history of taking a scale that's been produced, not in your interests, but then seizing it and transforming it into something that can work in your interest, is actually very, very relevant and essential. And so in that sense, I think that black anti-colonial theory really should be the basis of how we start to comprehend the climate catastrophe. Maybe we can discuss chapter four a little bit. I really loved this chapter, it's the body in the world. And there's two things I'd like you to draw out from there. Firstly, just tell us what you're saying about theoretical intellectual debates around the body in relation to your overall project. And then I was really specifically interested in the ways in which these anti-colonial thinkers in West Africa were concerned about the threat of settler colonial relations being instituted. Of course, this was undecided at this point and the ways in which they're looking across the space of the world and history to think about the process of colonisation and what they might need to prepare for or fight against. And you talk about extirpation as well. So if you could say a little bit about those things. So this is one of the chapters where I actually look at these two archives together in the same chapter. And so part of the chapter looks at West African writers, mainly journalists in the interwar period, who get very concerned with the idea that Europeans might start arriving en masse to settle West Africa and what that would mean. And the reason they start thinking that is that various organs of imperial opinion are advocating that that should happen. And they're advocating it in quite frankly genocidal language. You know, they're saying we can get rid of the Africans and put Europeans in their place. And, you know, that wasn't unusual to advocate genocidal imperial policy at that time. But there was an attempt in West Africa to try and understand what does it say about imperialism in general and the British imperial system in particular, that these forms of opinion can be articulated, regardless of whether or not they reflect, quote unquote, official imperial policy, which, as we know, is always in flux and often beholden to settler interests in certain contexts. But what does it mean about imperialism that our bodies, our existences as colonised Africans, are so open to potential extirpation, i.e. rooting out and replacement by Europeans. And then in another part of the chapter, the second half of it really, I look at black literary writers working in Paris at the same period. So, you know, the founders of the Negritude movement, especially Aimé Césaire, and René Merant, who writes the Batoila, a really important novel, which was the first novel by a black person to win the Prix Goncourt in France, the most famous literary prize. And what I find is that they're also doing quite a similar thing in these texts. They're different kinds of texts. You know, they're not newspaper articles, they're literary works. And yet in all of these different literary works, we find this insistent return to the question of what it means to be racialized and the bodily experience of that. But the ways in which the bodily experience of racialization, you know, the feeling of being hemmed in, pinned down, isolated. You know, there's a really interesting strain of this writing which talks about the lonely black body, the loneliness of race in general. So there's a really interesting kind of correlation between that and what the West African writers are saying at the same time. 
And I think that what this speaks to is a kind of way in which the personal, intimate, bodily experience of race and colonialism were extrapolated by black anti-colonialists into an understanding of the global system of race and empire as a whole. And so there was a kind of a method by which these scales were interrelated that I think is really important. And I draw on people like Catherine McKittrick to suggest that one of the things I think this shows is that we can start thinking differently also about geography and about this interrelationship between scales, which helps us to address, I think, some of the lacunae that often emerge when colonised subjects in general are seen as, in a sense, victims of space, but never producers of space. And that's one of the things that McKittrick points out. And so I think that one of the things I think that's quite that I was trying to do that was maybe different to what has been done before is that I was trying to show that a kind of thinking about the body in relation to empire and thinking about what's been called the intimate frontiers of empire doesn't just mean looking at the home or the school or the dormitory or the prison in the imperial context and showing how imperialism is produced within intimate relations. But it's also to say that for many of these anti-colonial thinkers, the intimate and the bodily, the corporeal, was a kind of route to the global. It was a way of understanding a planetary and global system as a whole. And that leap from the body to the world, I think, is so significant to how we think about race and colonialism in general, and especially in terms of how that goes on to influence and be a part of thinkers who are perhaps more well-known, like Franz Fanon like James Baldwin, and including people that I look at, like Du Bois, but there's something very significant here about the ways in which the body and the world are connected in their work that I think is a really important, I think, advance that was made at this time in terms of thinking about the connection between those two. I know you, in other parts of your writing, your essays, are very much writing about the contemporary politics of race and racism. So I'm wondering if we can try and build some bridges across this period and this work that you've done, historical work, and thinking about the contemporary politics of race and racism. So the broad question, things I'm thinking about, are how you see the relevance of some of the theoretical conversations and political movements that you're tracing, particularly, and some of the resonances and differences between that time and our own. Of course, the opposition there is especially stark, and we're not in the interwar years. But there are also some kind of resonances that I find striking, particularly around whiteness, which we haven't talked about, around kinds of demographic concerns that you talk about in interwar France, which I didn't know about, but of course of interest to me around the kind of hardening of the immigration regime. I do know about the 1924 Act in the US as the kind of famous high point of eugenic immigration policy. And I have read about the connection between the dominions in the US and the UK thinking about whiteness and policies. But you bring France in, which I didn't know about. So this kind of demographic concern, which seems to me very central to the radical right at the moment, and it's kind of the spectre of uncontrolled immigration, the ethics of the lifeboat, etc. So mm. there's that, mm. there's that, mm. you know, the connections between racism and also maybe on the more hopeful side, what you're arguing around globality against provincialism and how you see any lessons we might take from that for those involved in anti-racist struggle in thinking about the scale at which they do that work. Yeah, I mean, I think you're really right to point out some of the surprising similarities and correspondences between that period and ours, because I think that one of the things that confronts us today, 2023, looking at the world is, I think, perhaps one of the most profound things is this strange non-death of race as a concept and racism as a structure, if you whichever terminology you want to use. The non-death of race, I mean, you know, 
Hannah Arendt had already said eight decades ago that race thinking had survived libraries of refutation and its capacity to continue to withstand refutation, I think should provoke a sense of trying to understand what it is and why it's so useful and so powerful and doesn't just remain there as a kind of background hum, but undergoes these quite dramatic forms of recrudescence. So, you know, there's many well-known examples that we could pull out in the world of forms of liberal post-racial politics that's quote-unquote post-racial, you know, being superseded by forms of overtly kind of 1920s-style racism and racist language. So how can that happen? And why isn't this thing going away? I think what my reading of this archive aims to show is that if we think about race not just in terms of a set of ideologies, not just in terms of what people think secretly, maybe behind closed doors, but what they really think deep down. If we think of it not in terms of simply forms of affect that are detailed from politics, but instead as a form of global organisation, which is what the black anti-colonial tradition tells us it is, I think we learn a lot more about why it continues to exist and be so persistent and powerful. And in particular, we start to think about what it would take to dismantle it. And this is something I've mentioned in elsewhere in an essay, but it's interesting to me that so much of the contemporary popular writing on anti-racism doesn't talk about global redistribution of wealth. It doesn't talk about significant material transformation of the global economy. And that was something that really preoccupied anti-colonial thinkers. And yet it's kind of vanished from contemporary discussions of race. To, you know, most West Africans of the 1920s and 30s, at least the people who were writing in the region's newspapers, anti-racism meant things like a transformation of West Africa's economy and what they would often term as, you know, a fair place amongst the peoples of the world, their rectification of the unjust and unfair rules of trade and the forms of exploitation that had been imposed on West Africa by imperialism and which they extensively theorised. And so given that, you know, that form of rectification hasn't happened, perhaps it's not surprising that race, the ideology of colonial inequality, continues to be so powerful in a period where not just the legacy, but the kind of actual fact and persistence of that inequality remains and remains in need of some form of justification. You mentioned demography, and I think that it was really striking to me, you know, living in Paris to look at the correspondences between the 1920s, 1930s and today in terms of the language about demography and race and whiteness. And, you know, in many ways, things haven't changed significantly. And that's also a question as to why they haven't and in what ways they haven't. So I think there's really interesting kind of genealogical work we can do in terms of tracing the history of these ideas back through time and kind of thinking about also the ways in which these are transnational ideas. And one of the things I try and show is that, you know, it's not just anti-colonialism or radicalism that's internationalist or global. You know, the whiteness, imperialism and different forms of kind of world dominating concepts are transnational and imperial and internationalist in nature as well. And so why I argue is that, you know, you can't actually understand the French state and its approach to its own demography, its own demographic makeup, without looking at the relationship between white supremacists in Europe and the US and the ways in which they've actually existed in a kind of internationalist network in which they feed. They read each other and they cite each other and there's a form of important kind of exchange happening there. And that was something that was very often picked up on in West Africa and the Caribbean. You know, those texts, those white supremacist texts were read very attentively. So I think that the element that you mentioned of the hopeful side of things, 
I mean, I think it's not necessarily wanting to kind of give out predictions, which I think is not that useful. I think that the story of the Black Atlantic as not really just a place, but a kind of, let's say, an intellectual formation that is constituted in many ways, you know, historically through the violence of enslavement, but then comes to like radically exceed the bounds of that history and becomes something else entirely and something through which global transformation actually has to, in a way, pass through. And I don't just mean that politically, but also culturally and socially. I think that that is a, I don't know if you want to use the word hopeful story, but I think it's a story that doesn't justify completely pessimistic readings of history. You know, there's a kind of determinism whereby you can see oppressed people as simply replicating their conditions of oppression leading to forms of tragedy and the inability to really escape domination. And I don't think the history, the anti-colonial history, the colonial and post-colonial history of Africa and the Caribbean say that. I don't think that that's not how I read those histories. And I think that an attention to the actual literary and political production of intellectuals, of like particularly West Africa and the diaspora, which I look at in this book, point to something much richer and more productive than a simple kind of replication of imperial modes of being and thinking, and something much more interesting, I think, than that. So for me, I think that the history of anti-colonial thought is in many ways hopeful, and certainly a kind of rejection of an overtly pessimistic understanding. I think that's a perfect place to end. Thanks for joining us, and thanks so much for writing this book. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Roman Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC.